Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Sometimes none of the candidates up for election are good, that no one represents your views, and some people see this as an, as an opportunity to recruit people to run for office. Jeremy Baker is the director of Commonwealth Partners, the Chamber of Entrepreneurs in Pennsylvania, and works to find preferred candidates to run for office. And we're going to talk about how that works. Uh, Jeremy, welcome. James, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, first, what is Commonwealth Partners? So we are a 501c6 uh, here in Pennsylvania. Um, we exist. Oh, what is a C6? A 501c6 is a collection of business organizations. Um, so we represent uh, businesses across the Commonwealth that care about advancing free market reforms, um, enacting school choice and advancing freedom um, here in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have actually we exist because um, the business community was so frustrated with the legislature and how it wasn't enacting po uh, good policy. And so instead of trying to um, change policy, we decided to change the people who make the policy. Hmm. Okay, so who do you want to run for office? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing that we that we look at is, you know, what is what what are the ideal traits of a of a politician? You want a person with the right convictions, a person that can win election, uh, a person that will once they get in office be a bridge builder so that they can actually move legislation forward. It's it's really easy to elect people that will throw bombs, um, and sometimes there's there's value in throwing bombs. Uh, but ultimately, we want people that can build coalitions to pass real reforms that make people's lives better. Mm -hmm. Is that the order in which you're looking at? Convictions, electability, bridge building? I would say convictions and electability kind of go hand in hand. Um, you, know, you can have a person with, with the best convictions that uh, just can't win. And unfortunately, we have to be wise about how we support those folks. Um, and then you have people that can win but don't have great convictions. And ultimately, that's you know, a great fear of ours is you elect a person that's not going to vote the right way, that's not going to be um, uh, an advocate for freedom. And that's very dangerous because the more people you put like that in office, the less you can get done. Mm -hmm. So how do you find these people that are electable, uh, have good convictions, and uh, can work with others? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult, as many people can attest, but the, the beauty of having a network of entrepreneurs across Pennsylvania is we can tap into not just people we know, but people that our friends and allies know as well. So at, at the highest level, um, you know, we're able to connect with people from across the Commonwealth who have deep communities who know people who care deeply about Pennsylvania and can step in um, and ask them to ultimately give up um, and sacrifice a lot for their communities, for their state and for their country. Cause you know, it's, it's hard to convince someone to run for office. Um, you know, say you're running a business, uh, you're going to give up uh, something that you've created to go into the, uh, the world of elected politics, which is pretty ugly right now. And you know, they have to be committed to, to doing what's, uh, what's necessary because it's a grueling, a grueling effort. Um, some of it's self-selective. You have people that really want to, 
and you have to parse through candidates that are that you know fit convictionally and can win. Um, but this is where networks are tremendously important, and that's the, the first step that I, I, I encourage anyone who's looking at recruiting candidates is build deep networks because that's where good candidates will come from. So you mentioned that it's sometimes hard to convince people to run for office, uh, good people who you might like. Do you have a standard pitch that you give them? I mean, there's never a standard pitch for this because everyone's situation is different. The office that they would run for would be different. Um, but I think this is, comes from knowing the the individual you're talking to. I, I, a really good example um, is you know, we, ha- we have judicial elections in Pennsylvania. And there's a for one of our appellate courts, there was a, a couple open seats. And we were looking at the slate of candidates that were interested in running. And you know, some of them were good. Some of them were not good, had histories of, of opposing things that we've supported. And you know, we sat at a diner with, with a woman who was running for a lower office and said, hey, have you ever thought about running for, for statewide court? And she's like, no. <laughs> well, here's the opportunity and kind of gave her the pitch on why this was a great opportunity. And she ultimately ran won a primary, and then won a general election um, and has been you know, a tremendous advocate for, uh, for the things that, that we all care about because that's where convictionally she's at. Um, I have another example of a, of a statewide judicial race where um, a tremendous judge, um, he's on the Supreme Court right now, uh, decided to step in to run because we had encouraged him that you know this is our opportunity. We're, right now, um, our Supreme Court is there's seven members, it's five Dems, two Republicans, if you have any idea of what's going on judicial in Pennsylvania, it's kind of a disaster at our Supreme Court level from rewriting laws, um, redrawing maps. Um, <laughs> they ruled against what statute said multiple times, making things up out of whole cloth. We had an election that they overturned based off of 300 um, undated ballots. And they said, well, this time we, we, we will count them, but next time we won't count them. It's, it's a disaster. And you know, this great jurist who said, you need to step in because we need a person like you to rebuild the bench so that we have a majority of people that rule based on the rule of law, not on what jersey they wear, whether it's team red or team blue. Okay. So um, how does this work practically for you? Like, are there key races? Are Do you, do you just look every district, every uh, person in office and, and look at your network and figure out who who you uh, who you can pitch to run in these, or how does that work? Yeah, so at the legislative level, we have 203 House seats, 50 Senate seats. Uh, it's a daunting process to try to fill all of those, uh, which is why we work very closely with the current uh, with the current power structures in the House and Senate Republican caucuses. Um, you know, we want, uh, you know, ultimately there are people out there that do things better than I do, and I love working with them. Um, and, and I think both caucuses kind of speak to that where, you know, they can go into a community and talk to the existing networks. We can be helpful with that, whether it's from you know, our, our business ass, you know, connections to the, you know, the relationships we've built over the years of connecting them with different people who know, you know, okay, go into Erie County, which is, you know, the far, far reaches of Pennsylvania by the lake. Um, it's a, it's a strange community that you have to really get plugged into to, to figure out who does what. There's a great guy that's been engaged there politically for years. We go to him to see if there's a candidate that he can kind of recruit from town council, local government. Um, that's the kind of the, the key places we start there um, is, you know, who are the guys that are leaders in the business community? Who are folks that are leaders in local government? Um, 
And if you can start there, you build it, you can already start with a strong candidate. And if they're convictionally aligned, that's where it becomes ideal. Okay. Um, and you just go district by district then? Yeah. So, you know, you will, usually you have, you know, 75% of incumbents are running again. So you're not necessarily recruiting primary challenges. Um, in the open seats, uh, you have a number of candidates that put their name in anyway. Um, if we can have connections there to encourage people that are kind of on the fence to run, that's ideal. Um, I, I like open seats are great because it gives you an opportunity at a fresh start with a new member. Mm-hmm. And then in seats where we, we we view politically, you can you can flip the seat from D to R or flip the seat. And we we've been engaged in a number of Democrat primaries where it's. You have Democrats that would support school choice versus Democrats that oppose school choice. Um, you know, we're a nonpartisan organization. We'd love to see more Democrats engage in in, in the school choice movement. Um, so we've engaged there as well, where we've been able to, to work with some folks that have that have stepped in to run. Um, have you pushed the needle on that issue then uh, with candidate recruitment? Uh, not yet, but we're close. And, and here's why I say that. Um, we had a major vote in the House a few weeks ago, it's called the Lifeline Scholarship Bill 2169, where the um, we were giving uh, scholarships to students in low and in, 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 in low performing schools, the bottom 15% of schools. Uh, you get an access to state money to go to a better school. And we had a we had a Democrat, we had two Democrats vote yes, one changed his mind at the last minute uh, and took his name off the board. But the um, the 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 left went after him, and we were supporting him, but. There was a number of other folks that were running on that issue against incumbent Democrats who voted no. And you know, the threat of a primary is a real thing. Running an actual primary is difficult. But you know, this is a multi-year process. And this is what I would speak to the candidate recruitment as well. Is it's not just you run and lose and you're done and you walk away. Can you continue to build that network of people that care about that issue, that want to get involved and talk about it in the off years to then use that as political issues in the on years. Mm-hmm. So you're bringing up that there are actually a lot of conflicts in this whole business of candidate recruitment. Um, and you've talked about like, you let you prefer those open seats because you can just find a good candidate, have, have them win and, and, and don't worry about it. Contested primaries, you're making a lot of enemies uh, with that by, uh, and then uh, even more so uh, finding someone to, uh, to recruit against an incumbent who yep. really doesn't want to run with opposition. Now, only one person can get elected and losers tend to be upset with winners and winners upset that someone dared stand in their way. Have you made enemies in this, in, in this process? I'm sure I've made enemies. Um, I, I maybe too many to count at different points in time, but this, this speaks with one uh, you, you have to play to win. Um, the more you win, the less enemies you make. The more that you can engage in these things, the less you have to do work to actually defeat incumbents, which which help with, can massage a lot of things. Um, but you know, I, I think the the beauty of politics is is building bridges with people that disagree with you on things, and sometimes that means uh, who's the best person to represent the district. And um, if you lose a primary, I find that you can still go to the person, talk about you know what issues you engage in and why you did that, and you can build and maintain good relationships with folks. It just takes some time. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like when, uh, when would you recruit someone to run against an incumbent? It would have to be for some egregious, egregious uh, votes on key issues for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to stay out of, 
of incumbent primaries, I think that you often do more harm than good by engaging there. Um, if a if we would be decided if we would decide to do that, um, it would be based off of a district we can win, where there is a serial bad voter on our issues, and um, there's a, there's an opportunity to replace that bad vote with a good vote. Um, I think we we would be in, interested in engaging in that type of a race. Um, you know, for instance, there was an, an open Senate seat where the um, sitting president pro tem of the Senate, Joe Scarnati, uh, he was planning on running. He was saying that because he wanted to have his handpicked successor sneak in during the petition process. And, and we were you know, working with another candidate who had, who was a state house member at the time who had kind of heard this was happening. Um, the news broke. We stepped in, supported this other, this house candidate in what turned out to be an open seat, but um, it was essentially running against the incumbency of the president pro temp of the Senate. Um, and we won that seat about 60 to 30 um, in a three-way race because we were able to kind of leverage the right candidate against a bad candidate. And, you know, and this is kind of how career politicians can work at different times. Um, they think they own the seat and they think they can pick the person that can uh, replace them. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, uh, the risks involved in, in this. Um, you mentioned that, you know, pick, uh, picking the wrong guy in the wrong race can do more harm than good. Walk me through, like, what those risks are. Yeah, so I mean, when when you're talking about passing bills, and you guys know this as well as we do, um, you're talking about very small margins. And if you make one person mad, they probably have a cadre of three or four people that can listen to them, and all of a sudden you've you've developed a, a group of people that will oppose what you do, not because they believe convictionally that you're wrong, but they just don't like what you what, what you've done. And you know, we found that it's best to to work with those people as best we can to inform them that, you know, what are the values of this? Is it worth a bad vote on a key issue just to spite someone? And oftentimes it's not. And this is where I think the relational aspect of passing legislation comes into play because, uh, you know, we have the three P's of Pennsylvania politics here. It's uh, personality, politics, policy. Um, first, is the person like you. Second, is a good politics forum. And three, is it the right policy? Um, and unfortunately, it works in that order. Um, and you can you can move the first issue back and forth on how you engage in elections, whether it's you oppose someone and you can come together to work with them. Um, I think people are willing to be magnanimous if you're willing to be deferential. Yeah. And I think that's an area too, where having a broader coalition on an issue helps out a lot mm -hmm. because, you know, you might have a bad relationship with this person, but some other uh, groups that like this thing might have a better relationship with them. Exactly. And it's a place where uh, being in the candidate recruitment business can help you out uh, because if you did help get this uh, recruited this person to run for office, if, if they are on your side, then you're going to have a strong relationship with them. And that's kind of where the risk reward comes into play in in any type of, of when you engage in the political process at all. Um, you're stepping into a, a realm where you will inevitably make someone upset. Um, that's OK. And we all get upset when, when things happen that we don't like. But the opportunity of finding and supporting candidates that will agree with you, not because you've supported them, but agree with you because that's where they are convictionally. And specifically, those folks are bridge builders that can expand and drive coalitions. The net reward of having 10, 15, 20, upwards to you know, 75, 100 elected officials that care about the things you care about because that's what they care about, not because that's what you care about, is a greater reward than the risk of a few people being upset that you've, um, you know, ran, ran against them. 
are there people who you're, uh, do you have opposition who are recruiting candidates too? Yeah. Like when there's an open seat, like they're going to uh, do uh, find a bad guy and you're going to find a good guy. So this just happened in Pennsylvania. There was a new pack that was formed um, that I noted that we noticed on our campaign finance reports that was popping up. Um, and, you know, they gave to a number of Republican candidates and they gave you know, a decent amount of money. We were curious where their, their money came from when the, the report came up, it was from our teachers union was the one that funded most of it. So they, um, they realized that the Republican party is, is in power in Pennsylvania and they want you know, their piece of the pie and we're supporting a number of candidates across the state uh, to try to get their person in um, the Republican caucus. And in this case, uh, the teachers union are, are people who are going to be opposed to school choice. They're going to try and find Republicans who are not going to support that scholarship program. They're going to find uh, people that are opposed to charter schools or any any expansion of giving yeah. parents options or funding students. And so that's kind of the threat that you're looking at. Like, did, is that actually who they were? Do they are they able to find Republicans who are electable, uh, who who have their convictions and who are like? The, the well, traits that you're looking for, just with different convictions. So I think we'll find out. Um, the uh, I, I'm curious about the uh, some of the people they support. I think sometimes they just they they support a person because they think that they'll do the right thing. I'm not sure if they have any assurances of there. They did lose a number of the primaries they engaged in, um, but I, I know in, in one specific, specific race they supported a person that convictionally is very opposed to where the union is. So I think they were trying to. Try a phrase we use a lot is the unions will rent a Republican till they can own a Democrat, and I think that's what they were trying to play. And they, I think they tried to rent the wrong person. Wait, what does that mean? So they will support a Republican candidate with token amounts of money in the hopes that they will vote the right way to 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 not get um, uh, politically attacked by the union until the union realizes that they can flip the seat with a Democrat, in which case they will pull the money away and spend ten, a hundred times more against the Republican in a prime, in a general election. Gotcha. Gotcha. 2018 was the perfect example of this. We had Republicans that would say, oh, I can't vote for that labor reform. The union likes me. I can't vote for that school choice bill. The union supports me. And then the union comes in and spends one, one and a half million dollars against them and defeats them in a general election. Like, well, the union must love you a lot enough to spend one and a half million bucks. So you don't have a job anymore. Was that a lesson that, uh, that you think you're able to convey to some of these candidates. Absolutely. I think we, we had people really have their eyes opened up um, in 2020. Uh, in the history of Pennsylvania, I think we had one or two million dollar state house races. Um, maybe you get to three. There's you know there's a couple in the early 2010s. Um, we had seven, um, seven races where the Democrats spent over a million dollars in 2020. Um, you know, they lost many of them, um, but uh, it became very clear that the, the unions are, are not in this business to uh, make friends and work across ideological lines to you know, accomplish shared goals. Their goal is to kill school choice at all costs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a lesson that um, a lot of people might be surprised to hear. Uh, like we think that money really matters in getting someone elected. And you, you have, uh, you're giving an example of like a number of these house races where they're spending, you know, inordinate amounts of money to get their, uh, get their person elected. What, what does money actually do? And like, wh where, where does it get wasted? 
Yeah. So what we find that the, that happens in many of these races is you know, there's money spent on both sides. You know, we we supported uh, with, with significant funds many of the candidates um, through our PACs that that the the left and the unions went after. Um, I, we find that they didn't spend their money very well. Um, we also found that the uh, candidates matter, and this is where we it's specifically at the state house level when we're talking sixty thousand six six thousand people in a district thirty. Five to 40,000 people will vote. You're talking very small margins, and those races can be won not by TV ads and mailers, but by candidates knocking doors and candidates being likable, um, candidates with good bios, candidates that can, that, can work, um, that can work a room, candidates that can work hard at the doors. Um, that was where the, the difference, difference was in this past, uh, this, you know, the past election cycle. You had candidates, you had better candidates, you also had candidates that were doing. Uh, doing the nitty-gritty campaign work better. Mm-hmm. How many uh, elected officials did uh, have you recruited? I don't know, a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, enough where we feel really good about where our le- the direction our legislature is going. Okay. Uh, what what avenues has that opened up then? Well, I mean, I think the, the specific the school you look at is the one thing that we've really struggled with in, in Pennsylvania is running uh, any type of ESA education scholarship savings account out of our house. And for the first time, um, I think in history, the house passed an ESA bill a couple weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. And we can point directly to that. You point to the, you know, if you go back several years, um, you know, we killed a number of different tax increases from the, the, the governor's administration. Um, you know, those were because our people stepped up and fought um, you know, under a Republican governor, we increased our, ta- our gas tax to one of the highest in the nation about 10 years ago. Mm. And um, more recently, we've been killing tax increases than passing them. And that's, a, I think, a testament to the influence that we've been able to work with the legislature, working with candidates, working with uh, you know, politicians once they're elected to represent their districts well and work well in Harrisburg to get things done. All right, so let's talk about uh, like how this affects the Overton window a little bit, because from what it seems like, it doesn't shift the window too much, but it definitely uh, says which of these policies that are acceptable are you going to get. So education scholarships, a lot of states have them where there's a, been a lot more interest in the past few years in getting these things. It just wasn't possible in Pennsylvania, but now it looks like it is because you've got some good candidates. Is that a good way to look at it? That's, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think it goes beyond just education reform. Education reform is a key issue that is, we've seen tremendous movement on. Uh, labor reform is another key issue that we've seen tremendous movement on. You saw it post Janus, um, you know, some activity on it, but um, you know, we still have some legislative champions, but we were able to work with and support um, a, a new rep who came in in a special election in 2019 um, who's been a champion for this issue in Pennsylvania and has moved it from a kind of a back burner, like, okay, we'll get to that issue eventually, but like, whatever, to an issue that's being talked about, being pushed. It just got passed out of committee a couple weeks ago. Um, it's going to be considered on the floor in the House here, here shortly. Um, as far as moving uh, the, the Overton window. through that a little bit uh, more? Uh, again, uh, the Janus decision was a decision from the Supreme Court that allowed public sector members to opt out of uh, paying uh, paying union dues and representation fees uh, without being fired, which is um, um, uh, which was the case uh, before that decision. It's a way of uh, 
uh, ensuring that there's voluntary or voluntary association unions. What are you do what were you doing in Pennsylvania on that? Yeah, so the, the first thing that we tried to do and failed to do in the past was um, pass a bill simply notifying union members of their rights under the Janus decision. In the same way that you have to have postings of all the labor laws that currently exist, we wanted a notice to go out to the members that they don't have to pay fair share fees anymore. They don't have to pay to be part of a union that represents them if they don't want to. Uh, but there's, it's, it's more expansive than that in Pennsylvania. We also have what's called maintenance of membership laws, which means that you can only leave a union in a, about a two-week period every four years during the contract negotiation. Um, you know, we make sometimes they might like, not tell you when that week is. Yeah. They may not acknowledge the letter you get. It's like it's like you can only leave the union on a on leap day. It's like, well, I missed it this year. Sorry. Um, so you know, we have we have that law that we've tried to to repeal. Um, we current the state currently collects the political um, expenditures from the union uh, directly. So it'd be like if you wanted your know, money to go to the NRA. For their, for, you know, for its victory fund, um, the state would deduct that and send it to NRA, but they don't do that. They only do it for the unions. It's the only group that gets that special privilege. So there's a number of different advantages that the unions have built into the, the law that we've been working to repeal, and we just passed many of them out of committee, and they're currently sitting on the floor to run, um, in theory, in the next few weeks. Uh, and that's, you know, we're talking about moving legislation that wouldn't wouldn't have been considered in the past, and now we're, we have it on the table. And if we win the governor's mansion this fall, you have the opportunity to have it, you know, to have the legislature and the governor and really run a robust agenda to give workers rights. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about running for legislators, for appellate judges. Let's talk about that governor race then, because do, that's, do there, there are always people who are running for governor, right? You don't have to recruit them. But some of them might be good. Some of them might be bad. What's your role in relationships with these? Yeah. So full disclosure, James, we supported a candidate in this past primary that, that lost. He got in third place. Um, we got behind uh, Bill McSwain, who's a former U.S. attorney. Uh, he had a great resume. Um, was a strong conservative, would have governed as a conservative. And uh, um, if you've watched, if you watch the Pennsylvania governor's race, uh, the, the president came out pretty strongly against, against Mr. McSwain a couple weeks before the primary that really hurt him. Um, but we had a state senator who won, Doug Mastriano. He got 44% of the vote. Um, Doug was a great vote in the, in the Senate. Um, he's a strong conservative, uh, one of the leaders to push back on the governor's um, draconian shutdowns school shutdowns uh, that, that caused so much harm here in Pennsylvania. So we're going to have a pretty aggressive general election, Doug Mastriano versus Josh Shapiro. Josh is a sitting attorney general. Um, he's been a career politician. He's run races. Uh, I mean, he's been in political office for the last 20 years. Um, so it'll be a very interesting contrast of styles. Um, what we found is trying to get engaged in a governor's race. Uh, it's very self-selective. The people that want to run for governor are going to run for governor. Um, if you don't want to run for governor, it's a grueling process. And uh, I think a lot of folks would avoid it if, if they don't want to do it. Um, if, I, if I'd be giving advice, uh, unsolicited advice to anyone that's recruiting in the governor's race, um, there are a lot of factors that you can't control. Um, and be very diligent in how you, uh, how you pursue selecting a candidate because there's a lot of factors you just can't control. Mm -hmm. uh, isn't this whole candidate recruitment the job of political parties? I mean, it, it can be, but I don't think we should uh, leave 
leave jobs like this just up to the party because you know that's that's how we ultimately got into a lot of these messes is the party has picked its anointed one and cleared fields and we have uh, seen the result of that with folks that are inefficient um, that are not aligned um, trying to govern and they just can't do it um, you know the, the party I think should be engaged I think a, a strong party is a healthy thing but I, I look at 2016 specifically as an example of um, you know, the party never would have selected a guy like Donald Trump and he you know, tapped into something that no one else saw and you know, ultimately won an election that no one thought he could win. Um, I think the, the party is, uh, should protect itself. The party should um, try to steer away from candidates that don't align with the party platform that would be debilitating to the party. Um, but I think the more heavy-handed the party is, the more harm it can actually do right now, specifically because you have a lot of um, kind of anti-establishment anger in the, the grassroots of the party. Mm-hmm. Have uh, you had any candidates that you recruited that turned out to be not great? Yeah, you always have candidates that you work with that 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 have come through and haven't lived up to what you've imagined that they that they've been. Um, I think that's a two way street. Sometimes it's, it behooves us to maintain and continue relationships as they get into office, um, and that is, I think, you know the one of the factors that play there. Um, but yeah, you don't know how people change or what, you know, or what direction people go. I and mean, we've seen candidates, we've seen candidates that we've worked with and supported um, vote against our issues. And we've seen candidates that we didn't think would be great champions on what we've, um, on what we thought would, um, on issues that we care about become champions. So uh, it all speaks to, you know, candidate recruitment is just one part of um, working with elected officials. Uh, it also matters engaging with them as lawmakers um, and ultimately building relationships to get things done. Are you optimistic about uh, legislation in the coming session? I, I'm a conservative in government, James. I'm always optimistic. Jeremy, thank you. I learned a lot uh, uh, from this uh, from this interesting strategy of candidate recruitment and good luck uh, uh, working to uh, work within the Overton window. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.